Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. And I think I've heard somebody say that your, your next five years will be influenced by the books you read and the people you do life with. So if that is true, you better be careful about the kind of people that you hang out with. And we want to help you come up with a really good list of good books that every Christian should own and possibly read. My guest is Clay Craby. He's the uh, author of Reasonable Theology. It's his blog, his website, reasonabletheology.org. Always glad to have him on. Clay, welcome. Nice to be back, and I, I can't help folks with who they hang out with, but hopefully we'll get some good books on their shelf. Yeah. Now, for people who are uh, not uh, book readers, uh, this might be a, a good uh, nudge to get started. And for those who are voracious readers, I bet there's going to be a number of uh, books on your list that they've already devoured and enjoyed. And and maybe even passed on by now. Yeah, I'm hoping so. No doubt, as we kind of talk through these different categories of recommended books, there'll be some familiar ones, ones they they perhaps read already, but uh, no doubt I think we'll mention some titles that would be new to them or maybe have been on a list of books they want to read and just never have gotten around to, and maybe we can uh, kind of nudge them in the right direction. Yeah, so tell me when your love for reading started. Well, that's a good question. I've I've been a reader all my life. Uh, I've always enjoyed books and, uh, you know, just like anyone else, kind of started small and, and went uh, bigger from there. So uh, just always been a reader, always try to have a, a book with me whenever I'm going to be out, maybe have some free time. So uh, try to instill that in our kids as well. And they seem to be turning out to be readers as well. So uh, job well done, at least in that in that arena. Yeah. So when did you get this idea that you wanted to assemble like a set of books that would that would uh, sort of give the Christian scope um, without blowing the budget? Yeah. You know, I've always been interested in lists of books and, you know, must read lists and books everyone should own and books everyone should read before they're 30. And and whenever there's a blog post that mentions those things, I'm usually the guy that clicks on it and looks through to see what I might be (laughs) missing. But you know, this idea in particular for what I, you know, stole the, the notion of a five foot bookshelf back in the 1900s, there was a president of Harvard. His name was Charles Elliott. And he made a comment during a, a speech or a lecture that a three foot bookshelf would all all that you need for a motivated person to give them a really good education on their own. And afterwards, as you'd expect, he he got inundated with requests for what books would go on this list. So he put some thought into it and he expanded his shelf to five feet and he put out his recommendations. He actually started publishing this as what was known as the Harvard classics. It was a 50 volume set of books that he saw as being just really essential reading for a well-rounded education. And I kind of took that idea and, and thought about it. And I wondered, I wonder what we could come up with within that same constraint of five feet that every Christian should really have on their shelf. And I went through a lot of reading lists, a lot of you know uh, charts in terms of best-selling books of all time, and a lot of uh, syllabi from different seminary courses to, trilly, to really try and compile uh, a list that would be have the, the, the breadth that you would need in a lot of different categories, 
but also really be the kind of the foundational elements that if these were the only books you had, you were limited by shelf space or budget, if these were the only books you'd have, you'd have yourself a really useful Christian library. Mm, interesting. I want to get the uh, listeners involved. So if you could recommend one book uh, to a friend, if somebody says, what one book should I read? It can't be the Bible. What book would you recommend? Let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. What's that one book you'd recommend? 877-933-2484. The Christian book, of course. All right, let's talk about some of the categories, uh, Clayton, and uh, how you have uh, put this list together. Yeah, absolutely. So just in general, I've I've kind of limited to a number of categories uh, first being Bible study resources. Obviously, any book that we read or recommend or make use of ideally is going to help us get better acquainted with the book, the Bible. So I've got a category for Bible study resources right out the gate, theology books, apologetics books, Christian living books, books on church history, personal devotion, then finally Christian literature. So, you know, right out the gate, the Bible study resources, I think, are most essential. A lot of these are going to be more instead of reading from cover to cover. They're going to be more resources that you have, some tools you have in your toolbox to help you get into God's Word better and more profitably. Of course, a good study Bible. There's lots out there. You've got the ESV Study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible. NESB has a good study Bible. There's a lot of really helpful study Bibles that are going to give you the text of Scripture, going to give you some helpful articles mixed in, um, some explanatory notes, cross-references, commentary, all of that in one resource if honestly, if you can only have one thing on your shelf, a good study Bible ought to be it. But once you've gone beyond that and you want some help really digging into scripture, better understanding what it teaches, better understanding connections between Old and New Testament, uh, there's a number of helpful books that we could recommend for people to have and add to their shelf so they always have something to really help them in their study of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So, Clayton, when you talk about Bible study resources, are you talking about a, a Bible that uh, has commentary in it, or are you talking about uh, a, a book that will help put the study of Scripture in context and it'll talk about the customs and the traditions of the times? And when you say Bible study resources, how would you define that? Yeah, really all of those things. You know, again, the study Bible will get you a, a long ways down the road. But what I envision for this category is the ability for someone to study Scripture on their own, to be able to come to some of those uh, realizations and, and get a lot of the benefits that perhaps they have been relying solely on their pastor for, solely on reading other authors, and give them the tools that they would need to go in and, and really dig deep in Scripture. So that's going to include things like a concordance, mm -hmm. a really yes. simple tool to help you find things in the Bible. So for example, uh, just a, an easy example is if if you know there's a, a Bible verse out there where it mentions something about Jesus and God caring for us more than sparrows, you can't remember what it's about or where it is. You just look up sparrow in <laughs> yeah. the concordance. It's going to give you all the verses that have to do with that. So that's a really useful tool. Obviously, there's a number of commentaries. The one I recommend, just kind of trying to can stay within this constraint in shelf space, Matthew Henry. Uh, has a, a single volume commentary on the whole Bible that's incredibly helpful. But there's also some resources out there that can help you really get the big picture. Things like an introduction to the Old Testament or an introduction to the New Testament. And what those books are going to do is really help you get a handle on how the entire you know scope of Scripture fits together. 
as well as give you helpful introductions that talk about uh, the author, the date, the background, what was going on in the church, what was going on in the world. What are some some challenges within that particular book? How are we supposed to understand the purpose of a particular book? Because that's going to change if you're reading the Psalms versus reading an, an epistle from the Apostle Paul. The intent is different. The audience is different. Uh, the theological considerations are different. A book like an introduction to the Old Testament or the New Testament is going to help you really get your mind wrapped around that. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, uh, Clay, I love having a good Bible dictionary around. That's always handy to Absolutely. have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're going to encounter names and places and terms in Scripture. And it's important to remember that, you know, we're we're removed both in time and place from the original audience. So don't feel bad if you encounter a word and you're just not sure what it means. And And honestly, go in with a little bit of an expectation that, you might be incorrect as to what that word meant at the time. Right. Even with an updated translation and a version of Scripture, uh, it's still helpful to have one of those dictionaries around. And I I recommend one um, that's by Bill Mounts. He's he's a language teacher in in you know biblical Greek, but he has a dictionary of the Old and New Testament that even if you don't have um, the training in the biblical languages. That's a tool that anybody can open up and benefit from. And looking up a particular word as it's used, he's going to give you uh, the word as it was in Greek, for example, if you're in the New Testament, show you where else that word is used, the range of meaning it can have. The Bible dictionary is a really helpful tool to dig deeper into a passage of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And Clayton, what was the name of, uh, what was Bill's last name? It's Bill Mounts, and it's it's just called the Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words. So it's, it just rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> uh, but if you were to look up Bill Mounts and yeah. a Bible dictionary, you're going to come up with that one. Again, it's a really helpful tool to help any believer benefit from some of the language study without having to actually uh, have put in all the time and labor, though totally worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody is able to do that into studying those languages. Yeah. Clayton, when you look up a word in the Greek, do you instantly feel that you now understand what that word means? Because sometimes you look up a word in the Greek and it'll give you uh, like six different interpretations of that word. And you think, all right, well, now which one should I pick? No, we, we were warned of that many times in seminary is just because you looked up a word in Greek doesn't mean that you know everything there is to know about that word. So don't don't uh, inflict that on your congregation of saying, oh, this word in Greek means this all the time. English doesn't work like that, and Greek especially doesn't work like that. So yeah. a good Bible dictionary is going to give you the range of meaning and the examples of where that is used throughout Scripture. So uh, yes, look up the word, but don't make the assumption that every time Scripture uses that word, it's used in the same way, in the same sense, to the same degree. Uh, there's a lot of nuance, particularly in the Greek language. Mm-hmm. My guest is Clayton Craby, and his website is Reasonable Theology. It's a resource that he runs just to help everyday Christians study theology every day. He likes to present uh, sound doctrine in plain languages. One of the things I like about him is you can learn more about that at reasonabletheology.org. Speaking of theology, I think we're all theologians. However, once we jump into theology, we're going to find a lot of different opinions, aren't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, when you when you have the abilities that have Scripture, uh, we all have access to it. Uh, you're going to have people that come with different conclusions. 
And even within the realm of what is, you know, sound orthodox teaching, uh, we're not talking about the stuff that's way out there in left field. There's going to be a range of beliefs and opinions on different theological topics. Mm -hmm. All right. When we uh, start to jump into uh, books on Christian living, uh, do you have a book that jumps into your mind that you thought this was really a good book on Christian living? Yeah, and so when we're talking about Christian living, what I mean by that, and is you know, not my term, but what, what's meant by that is just books that are, are really practical for you living out the Christian life. Um, so a lot of those things are going to be books about prayer, books about uh, Bible study, books about uh, how to basically live a life dedicated to God in a fallen world. So some of the things that you're going to hear term-wise are spiritual disciplines, and there's actually a book called Spiritual Disciplines by a man named Don Whitney, really highly recommended. Uh, it, it just really breaks down and kind of demystifies a lot of the things that Christians know that they ought to be doing, whether that's uh, spending time in the Word, prayer, he has a chapter on fasting, uh, all these different things that Christians are supposed to be in the habit of but so many times have difficulty doing, he he presents those in ways that not only make them seem less challenging, but uh, just makes you eager to develop that spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Clayton Craby is my guest. His website is reasonabletheology.org. We're talking about the uh, 57 great books every Christian should own. Of course, you're not going to race out and buy them today, but... <laughs> It is important to build a nice bookshelf that's going to give you a wide variety uh, from Bible study resources to theology books to books on apologetics, Christian living books, church history books, personal devotion books, and Christian literature. And if you were able to give out one book to a friend or a colleague or someone and they said, what book would you recommend that I read? And it wasn't the Bible. You couldn't give them the Bible. What book would you be giving them? I'm just so curious. 877-933-2484. We'll take a short break and be right back with Clay. I'm out with Clayton Craby. He's at reasonabletheology.org. We're talking about expanding your library and having a, a nice, well-rounded uh, library for Christian living. So I'm in the theology department right now, Clayton. I'm still there kicking around some of the names you have in your on your list, and I'm seeing a couple of uh, names here that have been on my show. What percentage of uh, names on the list are living versus dead? You know, with the original five-foot bookshelf that I mentioned, those Harvard classics, yeah. he intentionally— chose uh, authors who he said, you know, the, the test of time, the verdict of history is basically in on. And these these are books that have really um, kind of come up to the top in terms of usefulness. So I really try to do the same. I limited uh, for the most part to authors that have, have been dead and gone for quite a long time. There's a handful of either living authors or fairly recently deceased authors but for the most part, the bulk of these are going to be people that um, have left us written works that have withstood the tests of time. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, let, let's chat a little bit about uh, personal devotion books. I know they're immensely popular. People would rather almost have a personal devotion book than God's Word. 
And they say, well, I get a verse in that, and then it's, you know, I don't have to invest a lot of time, and I get a little a little boost, and then I move on with my day. What are your thoughts on what makes a good personal devotion? Sure. And what some people might picture when they hear a personal devotional book, they just, they think of like a, a short morning or evening reading uh, that, like you said, has a verse and then explains that. And those can be great. Um, one of the ones I recommend is is called Morning and Evening by C.H. Spurgeon, which really does just that. It it explains uh, one particular verse of God's word each day. But there's some other elements people might not think of when I mention personal devotion books. One, I think every Christian should have a, a hymnal in their home. I think hymns are tremendously useful uh, for just worship and personal devotion. And, and there's a lot of good ones out there. And that's something I think you should have on your shelf. There's a well-known popular book called Valley of Vision, and it's a collection of one. Puritan prayers. Yep. And man, if you uh, struggle like so many do with your prayer life, this can be a, a tremendous resource for uh, reading prior to your own praying, not that you would just parrot these words back, but they're so beautifully composed and they can really uh, kind of prime the pump, as it were, mm -hmm. to help you in your own prayers, to to take those things and then model them uh, a little bit for your own needs. A really helpful book there. Um, and there's a, there's a variety of other things too. Um, you know, Knowing God by J.I. Packer perhaps could find its way in the theology category, but it's written in such a way that that paints a beautiful picture of who God is and his character and his holiness that I think just draws the person into worship. Mm -hmm. I have Morning and Evening by Spurgeon uh, right next to my, my chair I sit in in the morning, so I have that one. And uh, Valley of Vision is one I, I just love. I, boy, the Puritans really did know how to pray, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Clayton, let's talk a, a bit about um, church history. Do we understand church history very well, or do we just kind of ignore it? <laughs> yeah, church history, I think, is tough for a lot of Christians. I think our mental uh, timeline is pretty skewed and pretty truncated. We we understand that there was Jesus and the apostles and then the early church, and then there was the Middle Ages, and then there was the Reformation, and then Billy Graham was born. And then my church came on the scene and I became a Christian like that. That's uh, unfortunately a lot of people's understanding of church history. And obviously yeah. it's much longer, much richer than that. And so you want to make sure that you have a firm grasp on on kind of the, the main events, uh, the primary figures of church history that really scope throughout the, the life of the church since you know, if you want to just take it from from the book of Acts onward, there's a lot of helpful resources out there to help you get a grasp of of what God has done in the world with his church and what events and and figures that you should be familiar with. Mm -hmm. Clay, I'm a big fan of apologetics. I, I love reading books on apologetics. What are what are some of your favorites and what do you recommend? Well, my number one recommended apologetics book is definitely going to be Tactics by Greg Kokel. Yep. Uh, actually just had a chance to talk with Greg Kokel again on the podcast that just uh, came out on the website too. So if you're familiar with Greg and Stand to Reason, you can check out that conversation. Uh, but the book of Tactics is 
called a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. And what it really does is while so many apologetics books are helpful in, in giving you facts and information, you think of a book like uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict from Josh and Sean McDowell, it, it gives you the information on the number of manuscripts and things like that. Super helpful. Uh, what Tactics does, though, is really helps you understand how you can maintain control of difficult conversations, how you can stay what he calls in the driver's seat of conversations and really do so in a way that is conversational and relaxed and and warm and winsome, uh, even if the other person might be uh, skeptical, even a little hostile, uh, even if you're not super well-versed in the subject matter at hand, he has different tactics that he presents to help you in those conversations. So that's super highly recommended. Yeah. I love Greg's strategy. He gets you to, um, in conversation with people, to get uh, people to put stuff on the table. Let them put stuff on the table. Then it's out there. Then they've put it there. Now we can Absolutely. talk about it. Yeah. It's a great strategy. All right. What, what do you mean uh, by Christian literature? What does that look like, sound like? Uh, what uh, do you recommend there? Yeah. So I think... Uh, there's a couple different types of Christian readers, and uh, I think the bulk of them kind of uh, fall into an area where they don't do a lot of fiction. They don't read a lot of literature. They feel like they don't have time. There's so many good books out there, so many uh, books that are helping you dig into the word or explaining things that they neglect fiction. And I think that's a mistake. I think there's a lot to be gained from reading good books. And so there's a number of titles that I recommend that people have on their shelf and familiarize themselves with. And, and these are just wonderful stories. So, you, of course, you've got Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan topping the list there. That is a book that I feel every Christian ought to read at least once. I know the language can be daunting for some folks, mm -hmm. but it's, it's worth getting through. There are updated language versions that are available. Definitely dig into that. But other things on there, too, that um, people should consider, you've got classics like the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, the Screwtape Letters, also by C.S. Lewis, and then a couple others that people might not think of. You have Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ by Lou Wallace. This sure. is a, an older book um, that's really a, a beautiful historical fiction book that really ties into some of the themes of redemption and forgiveness. And then you've got some others that really aren't, uh, strictly speaking, Christian literature, but they cover some some really important categories and and aspects of life that I think they ought to be in the mix too. You've got something like Les Mis from Victor Hugo or Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky. Yeah, great point. These are books that are tremendously helpful um, that we would all do well to work into our reading list. Yeah. Clay, you've given us a lot of things to think about, and with the buying season coming up with the holidays just ahead, you're giving people a lot of great ideas as gifts. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Oh, you're more than welcome. And if, if people want to find that full list, they can just go to reasonabletheology.org slash bookshelf. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a great week, and I'll uh, hopefully have you on the show again soon. Thanks a lot. You bet. Clayton Cravey has been my guest. We'll take a break and be right back with our study with Dr. Greg Heddington. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. 
Oh, one of the my very favorite things to do is study God's Word with my friends, and I'm so glad that now I'm going to begin a new study with my friend, Dr. Greg Heddington. We are going to cover, ready for this, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. I love the Old Testament, and every time I go to study the Old Testament, I learn so many new things. And I think this is going to be the case for us as we jump into a joyful classroom and study Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers with Dr. Greg Heddington. Greg, I so appreciate you taking on this this role of being our our teacher for these uh, three amazing books. Bill, this will be great. There's so much application. I think we're just going to love it. Oh, good. Let's jump in. All right. Well, welcome to the first lesson in our new series of Scripture in which we will cover the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. The Old Testament is God's, you might call it, continued story of His plan for salvation. And that explains why the original text uses the literal Hebrew word, and, as the first word in Exodus, because God Almighty, the author, is continuing the story he started in Genesis, which we will not be looking at. In fact, 14 Old Testament books begin with the word and in the original Hmm. Hebrew text, although most English translations ignore the word and and replace it with now or another word. I just find that interesting. I find that very interesting. Yeah, Exodus was written around 1446 B.C., if anybody wants to just kick off that for a number, uh, written by Moses, who was commanded by God to write it. And you can check that out in Exodus 17, verse 14. Many of us have spent most of our time, I think we admit, in the New Testament when we read Scripture, although we occasionally drop in on Psalms or Isaiah and the Old Testament. In fact, if you ask the average American the question, do you know who wrote the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? You might get a response somewhat like this. Well, I'm not familiar with those books, but okay, I'm guessing here, but were they written by John Grisham? <laughs> well, that's, so, I don't mean to laugh, read? Greg, but that's sad. Uh, well, it's true. And, but, but we got to ask the question just for, for everybody. Why should we read the Old Testament? Because... Even many preachers rarely preach from it. Mm-hmm. So it's a good question. And if you are taking notes, Roman number one, why study the Old Testament? Have you any of your friends ever asked, you know, overall about writers of the New Testament? And, and But Jesus spoke of the Scriptures, not just the New Testament. He spoke of the Scriptures. And when he did, he was referring to the books contained in the Old Testament, what Jewish people refer to as the Hebrew Bible. Jews also refer to the first five books of Scripture as Torah. Now, Torah means law or teaching in Hebrew. So if I happen to mention Torah, you'll know immediately first five books of the Old Testament. The Greek word is Pentateuch, which comes from Pent, which is five. So I've heard some people ask, so why study the Old Testament? I mean, I just want to know about Jesus. After all, the Old Testament is a Jewish book for Jews. Well, friends, that is about as absurd as the idea that Shakespeare is only for the British, or Beethoven is only for Germans. Regarding the fact that almost all of Scripture is written by Jewish writers, except Luke and Acts, which were written by the Gentile Dr. Luke, some people forget that Jesus was a Jew, And there is a maxim regarding anti-Semitism, which goes like this. 
how odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, yet spurn the Jews. I'll say that one more time. How odd of God to choose the Jews, but not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God, yet spurn the Jews. Hmm. Now, got it the, the second writers time. of the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, was God's greatest gift to his people, second only to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they treasured Scripture, studied Scripture lovingly, and taught Scripture to their children. If we read only the New Testament, it's like walking into a theater when the movie's halfway through, and we think, wait a minute, what did I miss? This movie is totally confusing. That's because the New Testament presupposes all that God had said and did in the Old Testament books, so the New Testament does not repeat all of the Old Testament again, even though it includes many truths we need to know. So, here are three things we must know about the Old Testament. First, the Old Testament leads people to salvation by, now this is an interesting question, if you ask the average believer, how were people in the Old Testament saved? How do you think they would answer? Many would say by being good, by following the laws written down by Moses, especially in the Big Ten. That's the Big Ten Commandments. Well, no. The scriptural answer is people in the Old Testament were saved the same way anyone was saved, and that's by faith. Bill, we are in the introduction to Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Yeah, I love this, Greg, and this is a, a, going to be a great study, and I appreciate getting us started. And I know when you say Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you're going to, um, we're going to scare people because that's <laughs> that's a long study. But we're just going to start with Exodus, our introduction today, and we're going to plot along, and we'll probably spend a good part of a year getting through this. So I'm looking forward to it, and I appreciate uh, the introduction so far. So uh, let's continue. Well, that's a great joy. And again, Bill, I want to ask this question again, because people ask it all the time. How were people saved in the Old Testament? People in the Old Testament were saved the same way anyone is saved, and that's by faith. Now, we all need to remember this crucial issue, if nothing else in this whole talk. It's true that the Israelites did not know of Jesus, but they did know of God Almighty, Master of the Universe, Jehovah, Creator of all things, and they put their trust in Him. Now, faith in God was just as much the basis for salvation in the Old Testament as in the New Testament, and that was dramatically demonstrated by God when He delivered, in other words, when He saved the Israelites from 430 years of slavery in Egypt. Why did God do that? Because these were His chosen people, and it was out of his love and faithfulness to the covenant which he had made with Abraham years before, back in Genesis chapter 12. So the sequence is important. So here it is. First, God showed his love to his people by delivering them, that is, saving them from slavery, and not because they earned it. Secondly, after walking many miles through the desert, God then made a covenant with them through Moses on Mount Sinai to keep his laws. But it was God who took the initiative first. His grace came first. And then months later, we don't know how many months, but months later in Exodus 20, God tells his people, 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And then he gives his law. So again, after God had redeemed the people by his love, then and only then does he give them the law, which they are commanded to follow. Why do they follow it? Out of their thankfulness, out of their gratitude, not punishment, for saving them in order for them to demonstrate that they had, in fact, been saved. But no one ever earns salvation. It's purely God's gift to us. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved by, not by works, but by faith. Paul also writes this in Romans 4, 3, when he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul took that original verse, which we just read from, it was from Genesis 15, verse 6, which describes how Abraham was first saved by faith in God, and then secondly, how he demonstrated that call from God by his faithful obedience. Now, it was the same sequential order for all the Hebrews in the the Old Testament who believed. In the New Testament, it's the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, in whom we have faith, and then we receive salvation from our own slavery to sin, and in fact, sin can become slavery. It's interesting that Paul spent his life bringing people to faith in Christ by using the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, to prove his points. The Old Testament contains, that's a key word, the Old Testament contains many verses about some type of Messiah, a Savior, who is to arrive sometime in the future, but it's not clear. Now, we could call this truth hidden in the Torah, but it becomes clear in the Old Testament. I love the way that the great 5th century church father, Augustine, sometimes you call him Augustine, that's really more of the grass we have down here in the south, so church people like to call him Augustine. Augustine simply explained the relationship between the two testaments when he said this, the old in the new explained, the new in the old contained. Hmm. Let me say that one more time. The old in the new explained, the new in the old contained. In other words, Messiah is revealed throughout the Old Testament, but it's unclear. Sometimes Messiah is described as a victorious warrior in the tradition of King David. Now, the Jews really liked that image, and they waited with great anticipation for that. But in other verses, Messiah is described as a suffering servant. That didn't, and, and that didn't make any sense to the Jews because they had suffered for years. So those verses are typically ignored as a mystery of God. But in the New Testament, this Messiah is explained as both victorious warrior over sin and suffering servant. Okay, a second thing we must know about the Old Testament is that it is God-breathed, which is sometimes translated inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul did not mean that the authors of Scripture were inspired in the way we might think of an artist who is inspired to create a marvelous work of art, or a musician who's inspired to write a play or a a beautiful uh, piece of music, or an athlete who seems to be inspired when he or she performs. Instead, Paul means that the words written in the Old Testament Scripture are actually breathed out by God. 
even though Scripture is, and I don't say was because Scripture is the living Word, even though Scripture is written down by humans, yet the words come from the very thoughts of God the Creator. Imagine that. Scripture is not man-made. It has the authority of our Creator God, and so we accurately call it the Word of God. Now, I use the pronoun he for God because that's how Scripture refers to God as the author. That's how Jesus used it. And the third thing we need to know about the Old Testament Scripture is it is useful for our lives. And, Bill, uh, I think we might talk about that after the break. That sounds good. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We're starting a brand-new series. We're going to go through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So I'm very ambitious. I'm so grateful to Greg and his ability to take us on that journey. But after a short break, we'll be right back with more of our lesson number one in Exodus. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest. We are journeying through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Not just today. We're going to be at this for 10 months probably. But we're going to jump in back to our first lesson in Exodus. Greg, you know, I think there was a pastor that said, and I thought it was something I remembered, he said the Old Testament is like a fully furnished home dimly lit. It's like everything is there. We just don't spend much time there. That's good. Well yeah. said. And Bill, I want to give us a review of what we talked about before the break, um, just so people can catch up. We asked the question, why study the Old Testament? I mean, there are many reasons, but here are two. First, when, when Jesus refers to the Scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. Secondly, uh, is if we only study the New Testament, again, it's like walking into a movie halfway through and wondering why it's so confusing, because the New Testament presupposes all that God had already said to his chosen people in the Old Testament. And here's also three other things to know about the Old Testament. First, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Good question, because they didn't know about Jesus then. The answer is they were saved the same way anyone is saved, and that's by faith. They didn't know Jesus, but they did know God. And in Romans 4, 3, the Apostle Paul says, Abraham believed God, and it was, con- it was counted to him as righteousness. So first, he had faith in God, and secondly, we know from reading about Abraham that his faith was not just academic, but he, he demonstrated it by his obedience and living for God. The second thing we need to know about the Old Testament is that it's God-breathed. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, inspired is another word for God-breathed. In other words, some people did not just come up with the idea of writing Scripture. Rather, God inspired them to write it with their hands. So God is a real author. Now, the third thing we were just getting into, a third thing we must know about the Old Testament is that it is useful for our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, it is God-breathed. But the Old Testament is also, and Paul was talking about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is also, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, it's also, quote, useful for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So we listen to the word and then we obey what it says out of our love for our Lord who loved us before we ever even knew him. So we're going to go on now to the next point. And that happens to be, where does the gospel start? This will be our third big point. Hmm. How would you answer that question? 
Many people think it started with Jesus, and again in the book of Matthew. But as students of Scripture, we would say, no, the gospel, which means good news, the gospel begins in Genesis. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Check it out in Galatians 3, verse 8. A hint of the gospel is also cryptically alluded to in Genesis 3:15, but it's more clearly stated in Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and promises him to be not just a personal blessing for himself, but a blessing to all the nations on earth. Now, that's the good news in early Scripture. We need the Old Testament to prepare us for the New Testament so we can see the truly glorious cosmic scale of what God accomplished through the death and resurrection of the Messiah. We need the Old Testament not only to understand who Jesus is and was as he understood himself, but also to fully understand what Jesus accomplished. We need the Old Testament to avoid reducing the message of Scripture to what it does for just me personally. For example, it's very easy to reduce Scripture to something like this. Number one, I know I'm a sinner. Number two, but I believe that Jesus died to take my sins away. And number three, now I can be forgiven and go to heaven when I die. Well, for that simple conclusion, we do not even need the Old Testament at all, except maybe the story of the fall of humankind and, and maybe a few verses about sin. In fact, we don't even need much of the New Testament either. All you need is the story of Jesus' death and a few verses from Paul to explain it. Maybe that's why some pastors only preach from a very few New Testament texts. They just stick with that. Now, of course, those three points I just made are true. Thank you, Lord. And I believe them with my whole heart. But Scripture tells a far bigger story. Sin is not just something personal, neither salvation. The complete Scripture tells us the story of God's momentous project of restoring the whole creation of God through Christ. Bill, we're talking about the background here in no, the Old Testament. I, I love that, Greg, and I appreciate uh helping us get a, a understanding of the Old Testament, because I think you're right. I think there's a lot of pastors that will not necessarily spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. And I, I think the richness there is so amazing. I love talking Old Testament, so I appreciate this study. You bet. And again, the complete scripture tells the story of God's momentous project of restoring the whole of creation through Christ. That is scripture's big story of salvation. And that's how St. Paul thought about salvation. Now, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23, is one of the best things Paul ever wrote. And it can be summed up by saying, salvation is for all creation, the entire church, and also for individual Christ followers. And I do recommend later sometime, check out Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. But it's the Old Testament that adds the necessary information and the depth that tees it up, little golf term there, that tees it up for us to fully understand the New Testament. All right, our fourth point, big point, the central message of Torah. Remember when we say Torah, we're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament and what the Jews call the Hebrew Bible. The central message of Torah is that God is good and loving toward his people, 
and he demands that we be good. But good is not the word we lead with. In other words, God proved throughout history, and it's written in Scripture, that he is good by always taking the initiative to show his love first and saving us from the dreadful power of sin. And then he gave us rules for us to be able to be faithful. So again, I want to make the point that our obedience in order to be faithful to God comes from a thankful and grateful heart and not out of the fear of being punished. I mean, that you can, if you, you don't feel very thankful, you can always go back to the fear of being punished. But God hoped that the Israelites' motivation for following the law was out of their gratitude from their heart, from their very being, that God had rescued them had saved them from their cruel slavery under the Egyptians, which went on for 430 years. And I love the passage in Jeremiah 29, 13, which says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And again, when they speak about heart in the Old Testament, it's, it's the very ground of our, all that we are, our full being. Though as for us, The crucifixion of Jesus occurred before anyone even understood what it meant. As Romans 5.8 says it so well, while we were still sinners, meaning we were so unaware, Christ died for us. So now, ever since that sacrifice, all people have the choice to trust him or not out of gratitude and not fear. As John 3.17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved by him. Now, that is grace. In the, in the original Greek, the word grace means surprise gift. It's an interesting word, charis, meaning gift, grace. And that is critical information right there. Mm-hmm. Grace, surprise gift from God. So that unearned surprised gift from Jesus makes us, when we really understand it, makes us desire to be faithful to him, to love God and hate sin, which tries to always cripple us from being all that God intends for us to be. Now, this truth ought to make us love God's law as if, as if it were a friend. And in fact, the psalmist often speaks of the law as being something they love. Although loving God is the bottom line. In fact, one of the favorite verses of several rabbis even today is Psalm 97, verse 10, which says, Those who love God hate sin. Now, I also believe no one can truly understand Jesus, again, a Jew who was observant of Torah, unless we are familiar with the Hebrew Bible. Again, another word for the Old Testament. Reading and studying all of Scripture is critical because every year people are growing less familiar with the truths of Scripture. For instance, with each passing generation, our children and grandchildren no longer listen to are familiar with, let's just take the beautiful, theologically profound traditional hymns Mm -hmm. that have been sung by believers for many years. But more importantly, fewer and fewer people in the Christian Western world believe in the God of Scripture. And this is becoming a growing spiritual catastrophe for the Western world. 
Now, Bill, I just heard these amazing latest stats. In the past 25 years in the U.S., 30 million people have left the church. Wow. Now, they don't hate the church. They consider it more like a senile, elderly grandparent who's really out of touch with mm-hmm. reality. You know, you acknowledge that old grandmother, but you don't really want to spend time with them. And 30 million people, that is more than the number of the people that came to Christ in revivals for Billy Graham from wow. 1947 to 2005, plus the two revivals called the Great Awakenings in America. It's an extraordinary number of people. Shocking. And, and yet we know that our Lord is sovereign. He's in control of all things. His eyes on the sparrow, and we know he watches us. We live with hope, and as Jesus told us, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And this means that we pray for the continual advancement of God's kingdom on earth, which began with the historical arrival of Jesus. God's kingdom is not about real estate. God's kingdom refers to the reign of Christ in the hearts and lives of people, and we pray that we, as his followers, will reflect that love and honor him by serving others and articulating the good news of his kingdom that is available to reign in every heart. Bill, I think that's enough for today. That's a great start into our study of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers with Dr. Greg Heddington. I so appreciate you taking this study on. I'm looking forward to spending time over the next several months going through this. So I appreciate that and appreciate you, and I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, Bill. You bet. Dr. Greg Heddington, again, has been my guest. We'll take a short break. He'll be back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.